Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why this summer's hot new hobby is praying for a timely meteor strike. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, who made headlines this week with his strident demand to be traded from the Cleveland Cavaliers because he's tired of playing second fiddle to LeBron James, and to be honest, who can blame him? Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. I'm glad you're joining me with from your undisclosed location somewhere in the Western United States. And as always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship. And that's ship with a P as in Priebus. Ratings really do matter, so please take a few seconds, give us a couple stars, leave us a review. Uh, you all failed your homework assignment from last week. We know how many of you listened, and we also know how many of you did not leave reviews. Uh, and as soon as Apple upgrades their software, we will know exactly who you are so we can target you with targeted emails, spam, Twitter, Facebook, and mail. We'll create actual mail and send it to you via the USBS. Yes. This the most important thing that I want you, the listeners, our core of discovery, our, you know, our, our little podcast family to understand is that there are no innocents. No one is safe. We are watching. Ta- Taking Ship is a surveillance and is a surveillance podcast. And uh, we see all. Yeah, just bear in mind, as soon as you subscribe, we will have your bank account numbers. Yes. And so also please subscribe look- and follow us on Twitter. <laughs> That's exactly right. And also, for those of you who remember our episode with uh, Xander Mize, if you listen to that one, you are now our lawyer. Right. This is a podcast about uh, saddling our audience with all kinds of outlandish responsibilities and taking none for ourselves. It's uh, the most American thing we have ever done. Yeah. Uh, well, Frank, before we dive into things, uh, we haven't offered a uh, update on the war on the war on corruption recently. Uh, the, the venal pack spotlight has been turned down for quite a quite a bit of time, and we're not going to raise it this week because there are just too many candidates currently, and we need to wait for things to die down a little bit before we can decide who exactly the spotlight can shine on. But nonetheless. Be sure that during this Christmas uh, Christmas Day uh, break on the lines, we are continuing the good fight on the war on the war on corruption. That's absolutely right. Just because things are quiet at the Beetle Pack doesn't mean we're <clears throat> we're out doing the work that we need to be doing, uh, you know, quietly and uh, and effectively. We're like termites in that respect, actually. Just because you can't hear us doesn't mean we're not undermining the foundations of everything you care about. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. All right, so let's dive right in. What are the three things we're not talking about this week? Oh my God, there, Ellie, there is so much. And, and Ellie, listeners, everyone, there is so much that we're really excited not to be talking about this week. The first thing that I've been looking forward to not talking about all week is, of course, uh, Jeff Sessions. And, uh, and, and the fact that he is, his remarkable transformation from, uh, you know, not exactly savior of this administration, but from, you know, a figure of trust and respect to what can only be described as a stone cold scapegoat for Donald Trump. It has been a joy to watch. Yeah, he does look a little bit like that old uh, Jim Brewer uh, character, Goat Boy. Yes. In fact, actually, what I would propose that we do, that's that's a very sharp pickup. What I would actually propose that we do with Jeff Sessions, there's not really that much to say about this, except that it is so wonderful and so remarkable and so perfect that our boy Trebo, uh, whom we have given a stupid sports nickname that is better than he deserves, uh, that our boy Trebo should be in this position where he is being every day publicly shamed by the president of the United States, for whose favor he sold out what was left of his credibility uh, in, in, in politics more generally and in the world more generally, that he is every day being shamed by the president of the United States, but that the president of the United States lacks the moral fortitude, uh, the courage of his convictions to just fire the man. So we have potentially an indefinite period of uh, Donald Trump abusing uh, Jeff Sessions in public and on Twitter and Jeff Sessions just being ha- having to be there for it. Yeah, I mean, it, everyone knows uh, the signs of an abusive relationship. We've had friends who have been through them. Perhaps we've been through them either as the abuser or the abusee, uh, not to pass judgment on anybody. But the fact that Sessions no, you know, I, takes we, this, we can go ahead and pass judgment on the yeah, okay. yeah, we can, we can. I, I feel very confident in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the core of discovery is nothing if not the abuse, the abused. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to, to remind you, the core of discovery, like the rest of America, 
uh, is the owned, trolled, and furious. Yeah. After yeah. we have our own relationship there. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that he just, he's, he's on, uh, on, on Tucker Carlson tonight, and there's been some leaks of some of the, what he said, and it's still just, he, you know, propping up Trump. Meanwhile, Trump just continues new ways to embarrass this guy on a national scale. Uh, I, I just, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because there honestly isn't a whole lot more to say than either fire dude or don't and either quit or don't, but everybody's just kind of got to get on with things. Um, but, uh, Russ do, do they do thought, do whatever his name is. Friar uh, do thought of the uh, New York times of the New York times, um, who is one of the conservative columnists. Uh, he had a pretty, uh, intense article earlier this week saying that the president should not, should no longer be the president and it's worth reading in whole. Uh, but the first paragraph is something that I thought was particularly worth reading uh, verbatim just because of the use of language. I, I was really impressed with. Uh, so herewith, I will read in, in full Donald Trump's campaign against his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, in which he is seemingly attempting to insult and humiliate and tweet shame Sessions into resignation is, is, is an insanely stupid exercise. It is a multi-tiered tower of political idiocy. Idiocy, apologies. A sublime monument to the moronic, a gouty, gleaming, Ozymandian folly that leaves many of the president's prior efforts in its shade. That's just some first-class invective right there. Yeah. We hear it taking ship more than corruption, uh, more than, uh, more, more than uh, the, the grim but shared assessment of our own status as the own trolled and furious love high quality invective bilious rhetoric uh sublime condemnation i mean that's where we came in man like that's that's yeah. what we got into podcasting for right. and, and as critical as i often am, am of friar doth that and and he I, has earned it uh i i am i'm not i'm not too proud to admit that that is just some, some tremendous tremendous scorn right there yeah and i would say on a whole the ne- the never trumpers um on the right the conservative and republican never trumpers have risen to the task of utter heights of invective and creative use of words to a way that the left has not. I think that's and, broadly true. And, and if only they were able to twin that with being able to do anything about the yeah, guy who exactly. represents the party, then we'd really be cooking with gas. Yeah. But, you know, some things are too much to hope for. Uh, so say- speaking, speaking of uh, mm-hmm. poor use of wording and inability to speak of... <laughs> Hang on, in, before we go into that, I do want English. to propose one more thing for Jeff Sessions, though. Which yes. is, it is just a matter of time before he is, he is almost literally scapegoated in the sense that, you know, Donald Trump and members of the Republican Party, if, if for example, the health care bill were to, were to fail or something, some other, you know, God forbid, some other legislative or political uh, uh, you know, uh, illness were to, were to befall them. Uh, you know, as, as, as unlikely as that seems from where we're sitting now, something bad might happen to these people. Uh, they will march him out to the edge of Washington, D.C. All of them proclaim their sins upon Jeff Sessions' head and drive him out into the wilderness like the literal scapegoat of yore. Like They're the literal scapegoat of the Bible and the Jewish temple. The That's exactly two, right. One goes to God and the other goes to, the, to Azazel, which is the cliff that they would push the scapegoat off of. Yes, this is exactly right. Uh, so, uh, Trebo, if I were you, uh, if, if someone, if someone offers to take you for a nice walk and sort of the Northern tip of Rock Creek park, or, uh, you know, I, I would, I would decline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I would stay out of buildings with more than six floors. That seems reasonable, but going, you know, uh, yeah. where, where we were just saying, and that was an excellent, excellent point about the reality of Trebo's scapegoatedness, uh, w- where we were going to take this was, uh, Casper mattresses. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, were, <laughs> we were, we, we were used to sleep more soundly than Jim sessions ever will again. With your <laughs> <mattress>. <laughs> Folks, do you need to send a letter, a large number of letters, imploring strangers to come and help you <laughs> to bail you out of your impossible situation. Stamps.com. <laughs> if you're being walked over a cliff, don't you want to have comfortable underwear? Yeah, this, this is precisely <laughs> yep. all coming together. This is again, this is some truly professional work we're turning in here. Yeah, uh, but yeah. you know, after the compliment that we both paid to the uh, Never Trump right on their uh, use of invective and, and uh, just their overall alliteration of of the, their rising to the occasion of the English language, much like uh, Buckley would be proud of, I would think um, the Democratic Party uh, has not. 
<laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Um, and we're, we're not going to talk about the Democratic Party's rebranding because they don't seem to want to talk about it either. But since they spent a little bit of time over the weekend doing it, we thought that we would not talk about it briefly. That's right. So the Democratic Party uh, first viewed the DCCC and then in a coordinated release between the DSCC and the DCCC. So this is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, about which we've spoken at inordinate length on this podcast, uh, and relevantly so because of the 2018 elections, and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee or Senate Campaign Committee, which we've spoken about a little bit less. Uh, their leadership uh, jointly uh, released some branding that the Democratic Party could use to uh, cover a liability that, to their credit, uh, the leaders of the Democratic Party had correctly identified and early, which is that f- for most Americans, the Democratic Party did not appear to stand for anything except opposing Donald Trump. This was a there was a high majority of people who believed that Americans did, that Democrats didn't stand for anything except opposing Donald Trump. This is a problem, and so they mm-hmm. set about solving it and released their "This is what we're for" last week. Right, and uh, they came out with the the tagline "Better Deal." Uh, better deal for healthcare, uh, better deal uh, in that they are going to put back, they're going to attempt to put back in regulations and, you know, actually the rule of law when it comes to corporate mergers and antitrust issues, and that they're going to work to uh, raise the minimum wage and make better jobs for people. All on at the surface and fight prescription drugs. Those drugs, right. those are the big three. Was the was better job was uh, was a jobs thing, which is that's the combined better deal. It, that actually is a modified version of what the DCCC came out with a few days before the better deal messaging appeared. And the DCCC messaging was uh, better skills, better jobs, better wages. So from so that those three things are in corp, are sort of in, meant to be encapsulated in the better jobs portion of controlling prescription drug prices. Uh, creating better jobs, uh, and uh, what was the other? What was the other thing? Exactly. In the yeah, prescription yeah, drugs, fighting but, monopolies. You know, as many people pointed out on Twitter, anytime you have a series of things, uh, you know, better jobs, better wages, better education, it smacks quite frequently of better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. Um, yeah, <laughs> and this is one thing you usually want to be afraid of when you get into branding. We talked a little bit about this when we were talking about the guy from LinkedIn and the guy from Farmville's new thing to uh, win the future. Uh, you want to be careful of how people who don't like you are going to be able to misuse your brand. Um, and the Democratic Party kind of teed that one up pretty good. There's some truth to that. I think look, the reason that they came up with this, and I can speak more to the better uh, better way, better skills, better wages, be, uh, better jobs, better wages me, um, messaging. But you can see this also in the better deal stuff: prescription drugs and monopolies and uh, and better jobs. Uh, it's it's very clear uh, that I mean this is this is this comes straight from the ma- from the testing, right? Like this is this is drawn absolutely out of the research. Oh yeah, I and mean, this is all Jeff Garen and Hart Research, who yeah. I don't know if they decided to charge um, for the research again or they just you reused some of the stuff that they were doing for Hillary. But yeah, this is you know straight focus group and poll tested stuff. Yeah, no one will be and anyone who's spending time around this research or read any of it, any of it will be surprised by any of this stuff. And and I will I will say this. I have I heard I have seen worse. I mean, to, to be fair, I have I have seen worse. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and but there was so at the same time, this the challenge I see for this. There's, I mean, there's there's no harm. I, there's no affirmative harm. I think in the Democratic Party um, going out and talking about better skills, better jobs, or better wages. Those are message tested things that people will like. Uh, or the people do like, and so that language is going to be inoffensive. It might at least it at least answers the question: What the hell do you stand for? Other than yelling about Donald Trump, All, ditto lowering prescription drug prices. I was really interested in the in the monopoly in the anti monopoly stuff because that actually it's it's that actually is, a, is slightly bolder than it at first looks. It's it is an attempt to put into your basic messaging and branding a kind of. A, a recognition that the very structure of the economy has worked against a lot of voters, mm-hmm. uh, and the anti-monopoly thing was the be- was was I think probably the best way that they could speak to in me- in short messaging terms uh, the you know the sense of structural unfairness that a lot of voters are feeling, and I, I mean I think it's a pretty pretty reasonable attempt at it. The challenge that I see here, and the reason that I, I it's and again, a lot of this is structural. I don't know that the, the, the Democratic Party, that the DCCC or the DS or the Democratic Party itself, I don't know that with the present structure of the party apparatus, which includes all the committees and all their leadership, uh, that they could have done a lot better than this. 
But the challenge is it is part of a way that a trap that progressives have a tendency to fall into, which is to view politics as something transactional. Mm -hmm. People say they want jobs, so we're going to talk about jobs. People say they're interested in skills, so we're going to talk about skills. That makes that looks like it makes perfect sense, but if you actually, but if you sort of look at that, there is not a lot of evidence that simply talking about what, even talking well about what people say they care about, actually translates into votes. Right? This right. It's because people are not voters are not are not you know kind of you know logical automatons where you know I you know where they say I require job talk I give, I now give you job talk. I now vote for you. That, that equation doesn't really work that way. Right. Uh, and, and it's hard. It's especially hard in a midterm year with a party that very clearly does not, does not have a leader. This, this afflicts, uh, this afflicts parties, especially during the last midterm of a sitting president where the sitting president can still set the agenda for his and in the future, her party, uh, but is effectively like their, their, their power to set the agenda for their party is, is waning because they're on their way out and you don't know who the next leader is. Uh, and it also profoundly afflicts uh, uh, parties who have uh, lost, uh, who, have, who have, you know, where the other party has taken the presidency. Right. Uh, very hard for them to set the agenda. Now the Republicans got a got were able to turn this on its head in 2010, uh, where they were able to turn resistance to the president. They were actually able to take resistance to the president and resistance to a particular piece of legislation, and turn that into an entire messaging campaign for itself. Uh, but for the most part, it's very hard as a party if you are in the first midterm after you have lost a presidential election and you have no leader. It's very hard to do something that voters can respond to a little bit more, which is to tell a bigger story, a bigger narrative, something a little bit more inspirational, something a little bit really a proper story about America in which the voter can be cast as the hero of that story. Right. I mean, and, it's and worth this, this clearly is that like this is this is a very uh, this is you know a, a, a technically sound. Uh, small bore problem answer to I think a bigger problem, and I'm not really sure that the people involved really were in a position to do much better, frankly. Right. I mean, you, you start drawing con, you know kind of comparisons to Clinton '96 reelect with the school uniforms and and that sort of thing. You know, things that are poll tested, everybody can agree on. We're all going to do that. That's great. Difference being is that you have the presidency at the time and you can actually do something. Uh, it's more instructive, I think, to look back at '94 and the Contract for America, which was also incredibly poll driven. And very heavily focused group, uh, you know, Frank Luntz in his Luntzness uh, really ran the ran the table on that. Um, and it was difficult for anybody, right, left or center, to disagree with kind of, you know, Newt's Ten Commandments of what they were. Um, and that's what we might be looking at here. But whereas the Contract for America gave an overall vision, I don't know that this does. Mm-hmm. This basically agrees with the – this puts – the Democrats in a position where they're agreeing with the premise that the American dream is no longer working. And the people that are preventing you from having the American dream are currently in power. The Dems recognize, I think that there is a limited amount that they can do while, while in the minority um, or with even a potential slim majority in the house and Senate, if everything goes, you know, halcyon dreams in the 2018 elections, um, which I don't imagine it will, but, even under those circumstances, there's very limited that they can do uh, with a Republican in the White House who is diametrically opposed to what they believe in and, quite frankly, to what a lot of what the Republican Party believes in. Um, however, because of Trump's um, campaign as a populist, some of the promises he's made as a populist, and some of the other aspects that he's said and done that put him at odds with the Republican Party, there is actually potential, and again, this is all prefaced on the idea that he's still the president, um, there is potential for the Democrats to work with him on some things. You know, I think if somebody showed up to, to Donald Trump and said, you know, the 20% of the country that supports you, 15%, uh, you know, 80% of that 20% supports single payer healthcare. You, you don't think he would turn on a dime and suddenly support single payer? He absolutely would. I, I think he is now so far gone down playing the the caricature. I I, I, I take your point. I think he is now so far gone down the caricature of. I mean, he is playing a role uh, which includes being a kind of replacement level Fox News viewer, uh, as David as I periodically remind us that David Roth characterized him. That I don't know if he could be receptive. Well, I say that now actually removed entirely from context. So if you got him on like a golf course away from everything. Right. 
and sold it with flatter and say, hey, everyone really likes you and they really love the fact that you were originally for single payer and that single payer was your idea, that you, Donald Trump, came up with the idea of single payer health insurance because it's a better deal for everyone. And yep. they're all your friends and they all think that's great. Yeah, you could probably sell that to him. Yep. Sure. And uh, as, as uh, I said a few weeks ago, uh, if the, the Democrats take the House uh, in 2018, I would say that there's a better than 50% chance that we are headed towards single payer by 2026. It's a it's a reasonable it's a reasonable projection. Um, even Chuck Schumer has come out and said that he's in favor of the that he's open to the idea of the Democratic Party platform, including single payer, which is something that he has been against in the past. Uh, I, I don't necessarily I, I wouldn't want to speculate as to whether or not this is simply a response to the politics of the day or if he's actually having a, a legitimate kind of policy or moral change of heart. Uh, I think we can all draw our own conclusions. Uh, but anyway, that's and I will say this: like this is to the extent I made some. I've made what are frankly some excuses here uh, for uh, the Democratic Party apparatus because, again, I think structurally it's very hard to put up the kind of the kind of larger bore vision that most Democrats would like to have seen the party come up with in the absence of a leader. And if you sort of look at twenty, if you look at nineteen ninety four, excuse me, if you look at nineteen ninety four, you know that that particular revolt had a had a had a leader. It was Newt Gingrich's contract with America. As weird as it seems, was. A sufficiently recognizable figure to kind of give yeah. some sense, but the other thing is, I mean, looking there's there's some value to the left in looking at those, in looking at '94 and especially looking at 2010. But the truth is, the Republican Party has always done uh, reactionary anger better than the Democratic Party. It's yeah. just just much. It's it's a much bigger and much more motivating part of their political culture than it is for the Democratic Party. Well, I would, I would also s- 2006 is a great example of that it's a do it's a doable prospect for us. Uh, to win, to win on resistance, to win on anger, but it's just it is it's not something that we tap into as naturally. It's just not part of our political culture, and we yeah. don't do it as well. I would say you know part of that the explosion of talk radio and cable news since 1992. Democrats have been in office for four of those six presidential terms. So the mm-hmm. Republican apparatus, messaging apparatus, advocacy apparatus is set up to play resistance in a much better way than the Democrats are, and this that's, is a fault. That's an excellent point. And this is a fault of the Democrats for having not taken advantage of being in power to set up um, some sort of establishment or process or, you know, mechanisms to fight when they weren't in the majority or they didn't have the presidency. Which is not to say uh, that the solution to this would have been to create a bunch of left-wing radio. There is left-wing radio. You and I appear on, appear on an example yeah. occasionally, uh, with Steve Jackson's program out of, uh, in the, in, out of the San Francisco Bay area. There is left-wing radio, but, but that, you know, the idea that we were going to, and I'm not saying you're suggesting this, but the apparatus, it seems to me for creating for the democratic party to be, um, vital and competitive, even when we're down in the same way that Republicans can come rolling back from defeats more quickly. Uh, and it was probably not to create a, a liberal Fox news. I mean, there have been attempts right. in essentially exactly that. Yeah. Uh, current TV was a shot at that, right? Like just, again, it's not, oh, I forgot TV. about current TV, right? See, there you go. Exactly. It's not, that became Al Jazeera, which is not to say that we should, it's not to say that, you know, again, it's not to say that we shouldn't have NBC, you know, but I think, the mechanism for that too was never going to be. We're going to create a media empire that is designed to sort of to gin up liberals and make them angry constantly. It's just not. It's not again part of American liberal culture to be angry all the time in the way that it has been extremely sustainable for American conservative culture. It was not to sound too institutionalist. It was probably the party. It was prob- there was need- there needed to be some mechanism to maintain some degree of vision and to pro- and to propagate that vision of what the kind of democratic story of America was on something other than a series of AM radios and, uh, you know, and, and, and people yelling on cable. Uh, and that was, that was probably going to have to be through the party. And we just, and you're absolutely right. We did, we haven't created that infrastructure yet. That infrastructure right. that was allowed to wither. Right. I mean, and I would say also just, you know, psychologically, uh, when we talk about, again, our definition of the white working class, um, being people who are afraid of, uh, cultural, uh, um, uh, changes, it's much easier to get ginned up and angry about uh, cultural changes that you are seeing than it is for progressives to get angry about things not happening fast enough. Sure. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, you don't feel, 
that this that is an excellent excellent point, and that's precisely it. We don't feel like our when things that we want to have happen because again, I mean, it's in the nature of progress, right? The moving the moving forward, change in a positive way. We can be frustrated, and and certainly MSNBC caters to that, and and you know and, you know and democracy now. I mean, to go a little farther down the left, caters to caters to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little more actual anger on that particular program, uh, but you know, it's not. You don't feel progressives don't feel their identities are under attack when that kind of visceral the kind of visceral thing that causes you to to you know we, we can deplore that people don't that you know policymakers or other voters don't agree with us and aren't doing anything about climate change or whatever problem we care about particularly um, but our very personal identities aren't attacked in the way that uh, Fox News has done an excellent job of just putting their finger on that spot in the brain of their viewers. You, you right here, you are being threatened. Yep. You know, and, and, you know, it and brings it us, it, it. you know, we don't, we don't do fear as well. And yeah, you know, it brings a little bit back to uh, Josh Barrow's article we were talking about last week with the hamburger, hamburger thing. It's very easy to, that, to personalize that. Sure. And that may be why we have, uh, you know, one of the, and I think that's, we did sort of attempt to do that a little bit in 2016, actually. And I, I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism in and of itself, but, you know, we've, I think, Certainly, the Clinton campaign saw felt like there was an opportunity there to do that kind of. You are personally attacked. You are personally at risk. You need to vote because if you don't, these bad people are going to do bad things to you. And these bad people, being Donald Trump and his cronies, uh, you know his and 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 that. I mean that that worked to a degree, but I mean it's there's a real question. Actually, there's a real question as to whether that worked any better than having advanced a different route, having advanced a more cogent and more motivational ration, more motivating rationale for running for president would have worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, now that we've beaten that to death, considering we weren't going to talk about it, let's move on to Schrodinger's healthcare bill. Yes. Is it alive? Is it dead? Who's to say? At Last 6.09 week, p.m. Eastern. Um, yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Last week, I, I, I think I, I think I, sort of predicted with some degree of confidence maybe no you flat out said it was safe did i say it was was dead excellent well i mean always take your racing tips from me and and i think it was question 16 in our 20 questions i asked if obamacare Obamacare is now safe from repeal and you said yeah i think i said i think i said that it i think i said that it probably was uh and that was just that was destroyed. Actually, you can make the argument. It's still, you can make the argument it still is. It's Schrodinger's uh, healthcare bill. It's Schrodinger's healthcare bill. It is both safe and not safe. And again, this was just a case in which I failed to properly consider the uh, chaos option. And, and it's just worth remembering in these time, political times, always remember the chaos option, which is if there is an option that is so dumb that no one in their right mind would do it, it is 100% on the table and very likely will happen. Um, and that's that's clearly what what we're seeing now. Uh, it's being covered elsewhere. Uh, you know, we we need to spend a bunch of time on this thing. But what is what you know what is happening is uh, the Senate is proceeding to vote on something they don't know what it is. Probably uh, skinny repeal, as it's called, which repeals the. This is happening in real time. By the time you listen to this, this issue will have been resolved. So I, you know, we're, we don't necessarily need to get into the details of it, but. There have been a couple of absolutely wonderful and genuinely marvelous statements, especially from the sainted Lindsey Graham on this subject. Lindsey Graham is having one of the most remar- is turning in one of the most remarkable political performances of the last year of the last ten years right now. Uh, and and I will now turn it over to Ellie to uh, to at least identify a couple of his more just succulent quotes. Yeah. So within the last hour or so, uh, Lindsey Graham. John McCain, um, Ron Johnson, and Mike Lee, potentially someone else. We weren't watching. We were kind of seeing this, you know, on Twitter as we were getting ready to figure out what we were going to not talk about today. Um, Essentially, they have boiled, uh, Lindsey Graham boiled it down to, uh, I'm going to vote for the skinny repeal, even though it's a quote fraud, uh, quote quote, half-assed. Um, and several other things where he defined the skinny repeal as just unbelievably as stupid as it is. And for people who want to understand what the skinny repeal involves, it's essentially to get rid of the individual mandate, the corporate mandate, and the medical device tax. Um, And the way the economics behind Obamacare um, were supposed to work, um, and I've taken to saying supposed to as opposed to work because, you know, markets are markets, 
is that one of the ways that they were going to lower costs for everyone is that by insisting everybody having health insurance. So healthy people, like hopefully all of our listeners are, uh, would obviously be paying a much lower, much lower premium on a monthly plan than elderly people who would potentially uh, be ill or people with pre uh, pre-existing conditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this was put into effect that uh, either you either had to have health insurance or you paid a penalty for not having health insurance. So the Republicans really didn't like this thing, and this is something that they want to get rid of. So this would be part of what skinny repeal would do. To get rid of skinny repeal means that people who don't want to have health insurance wouldn't have to have health insurance. It throws the markets totally out of whack because you drop out the last, you know, that 10% of healthy people who are just paying their premiums and never actually using uh, using larger amounts of health care. So the CBO has scored this uh, saying that 16 million people would lose health care and there would be a 20 plus percent rate hike for everybody else. In the next year. Yeah. A 20% increase in insurance premiums in the next year. This is, I mean, so and that, that was a wonderful summation. This is exactly right. This has the potential to be political suicide, you know, pulling because of the premium rate hike because people are getting turfed off their health insurance. Uh, it is politically, I think, may, it's hard to say, but it could certainly be at least as big a catastrophe as, as repeal without replace or any of the other god-awful, or even any of the other god-awful options that have gone straight to hell. But but what I want to focus on here is the is, is Lindsey Graham's you know I mean again actually employing some some invective that I find pretty admirable uh, talking about skinny repeal which is indeed a complete disaster it's an ill conceived utter waste uh, you know as you know as as malicious as it is fraudulent uh, and that is quite a bit on both counts but then saying that he would but then say hey, that he would vote for it to advance the process with the promise only with a promise from Paul Ryan that the bill would not become law, that the House would do something just so that this bill could then be taken, just so the House could have passed something, and that it could then be taken into conference with, or just so the Senate will have passed something so it could then be taken into conference with the House. Basically saying, I'm voting for a bill that I don't think should be law in order to continue this process. Right. Senator Graham, if I may, I have a really great suggestion for you. There is another way to prevent a bill that you do not think should become a law from becoming a law. And Wait, that Frank, is, I think you need to beat this one out slowly. And I think <laughs> that, that is not to pass it into law. Yeah. That, yeah, it is not to pass it into law. And also, for those who have forgotten, and, and, and here before I have a rage stroke, I will leave off. For those who have forgotten, the House sent its particular monstrosity up to the Senate not because the House loved that bill, but so that they could pass something out of the House and say they had, so the Senate could then pull out what we thought was the plan McConnell had in his desk drawer all along and pass something that could then actually be the, the complete con Congress's health care bill. Whoops. So, yeah, so basically the people who punted, who punted a ball made of garbage out of their own caucus and sent it up to you so you could turn it, so you could just throw it away and replace it with something better. Uh, you are now asking those people here, we are going to punt you back our own ball of garbage and hope that you can turn this and hope that collectively having punted each other two balls of garbage, we will now somehow turn this into a great and wondrous, uh, wondrous object that we can use for all of our purposes and everyone will get well with. Yeah. I want to make it an addendum. Yeah. yeah. I want to make an addendum. Go ahead. Um, yes. That it was not Mike Lee, it was uh, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, um, the physician who uh, came to some fame uh, after he said some complimentary things about Jimmy Kimmel um, and appeared on his show saying he was going to defend people's right to health care, et cetera, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Good. It's a murderer's row of people who have been rhetorically condemnatory of this, you know, appalling intellectually and morally bankrupt effort to repeal uh, to to in in ways. You know, skinny, you know, baroque and horrifying repeal Obamacare, uh, and and of course are willing to vote for just that. I'm glad we all got them together at the same time to for a kind of barbershop core barbershop quartet from hell. Yeah, so uh, I'll just read from a, you know a couple choice lines from the New York Times uh, roundup. Again, this press conference happened uh, within the last hour, and obviously everybody are, uh, is very distracted by a certain article in the New York the New Yorker, and it's not about the history of elevators. Uh, so the New York Times and says it's a shame. Which, I mean, if you've never read the New York Times article on his, the New Yorker article on the history of elevators, you absolutely should. It's a fascinating 20 pages. Uh, so uh, the New York Times, 
The senators were unsparing in their criticism of the so-called skinny repeal, saying it would crater the health insurance markets and send premiums skyward. Quote, the skinny bill is the skinny bill as policy is a disaster, Mr. Graham said. The skinny bill as a replacement for Obamacare is a fraud. Senator Johnson said the skinny bill in the Senate doesn't come close to meeting our promises. But they feared that House Republican leaders would just take the stripped down bill, pass it and send it to President Trump. Quote, right now, I am voting no, Mr. McCain said. Mr. Graham was emphatic. Quote, I need assurances from the Speaker of the House and his team. And here's the here's the key that if I vote for the skinny bill, then it will not be the final product, Mr. Graham said. Quote, I'm not going to vote for a pig in a poke. How heroic. How heroic. And and also, Lindsey Graham then went on to say that he's beginning to suspect that that gentleman who accosted him on the street was not actually the official wallet inspector at all. Indeed. Yeah, I I mean, the, the level of, and, you know, obviously... Frank and I say this with all due respect to John McCain as a true American hero and someone who is struggling with this brain cancer diagnosis, but he is also the king of being, um, well, I mean, he is almost the king of alt centrism. And this is why, uh, because he comes out and, uh, comes and votes, uh, after getting this diagnosis, he flies across the country and, and gives this stirring speech about how the Senate needs to get back to functioning. Meanwhile, he's voted for a piece of shit that he doesn't believe in. And vo- and 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 on a we need to get right back. We need to get back to functioning right after I vote in favor of this piece of this dysfunctional piece of legislation that is being pushed through in a dysfunctional way. Yeah, yeah. So that's just you know two just tremendous performances coming in from our favorite Sunday talk show guests. Yeah, and again, you know, due respect to John McCain as as an honest to god true American hero, but come on, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, so those are three things we weren't going to talk about, and, mm-hmm. and yet thank again, god we, thank god, thank god we didn't, because we might have gone on the great length and uh, and possibly raised our blood pressure to dangerous levels. Yeah, and it's been pointed out to me that uh, the. Uh, daily Vanity Fair uh, email blast where they highlight some of their writing, uh, they use a similar gimmick to what we use. Uh, Not to as good effect because it doesn't read quite as well as it sounds. Uh, But don't be fooled. We came up with the we're not talking about things first. Correct. And we have, and okay, so what are the things about us? We are incredibly defensive about structures that other people are using, and mm-hmm. we surveil all of our guests who are all, all of our listeners who are also our legal representatives. Those are the, the two, two pieces of canon about taking ship. It's very important to remember. Yep. No, what do we want to talk about? We can't. What not, do we want to talk about? We can't not talk about this. So. Oh, man, it's the mooch. The mooch is loose. The mooch has broken contain and is running roughshod all over everything. And I've got to tell you, as with the fact that everything is falling completely the fuck apart, it feels fantastic. Yeah. So uh, for people who don't know who the mooch is, it's Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, He is a moderately successful hedge fund um, uh, manager who, as he says, every other sentence, essentially, that he went to Harvard Law School. He grew up in Long Island. Um, if you want to see something fantastic, Trevor Noah at The Daily Show. Uh, I didn't see the show because I don't watch it, but I saw the clip on Facebook or Twitter or something. They matched up uh, on the top of the screen. It was Scaramucci uh, making hand movements. On the bottom, it was Trump doing the same. And it is terrifyingly freaky how in sync they are. Uh, same motions, same fingers used, same pace. It's remarkable. Anthony Scaramucci, who early on uh, was not a Trump supporter. He raised money for both Scott Walker and Jeb Bush and said many derogatory things about Donald Trump. He has become the White House communications director because when you're looking to fix your communications apparatus, why wouldn't you hire a short-term looking, angry Long Island hedge fund manager to unfuck your communications department? Would be my first choice. Yeah, your first choice. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he promptly went out on a, into a press conference on Friday and made the news all about him. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really greatly like about the way that he went out on Friday is he repeatedly said he's a businessman, uh, to which uh, I only recalled the old Phil Hartman sketch on Saturday Night Live where he's the caveman lawyer. And yes. that was, his, that was yes. his strong defense. He would stand up and said, I'm just a caveman. Your new technology frightens me. Mm-hmm. 
And which is essentially what the mooch was saying. And again, we don't call him the mooch just for fun. This is what financial reporters have been calling him for years. He also puts on um, the SALT conference in Las Vegas every year. This year, um, highlighted by a speech by uh, none other than former Vice President Joseph Biden. Um, So the mooch is a um, well-known pugnacious asshole in the finance world. And um, in the less than week he has been on the job, he has not let us down at all. No, it's uh, been everything we could have dreamed and more. More, more indeed. Um, and just about uh, an hour and a half ago, Ryan Lizza from The New, York, from the New Yorker, uh, and Jesus Christ, I can't believe we've now mentioned The New Yorker twice in one podcast. We're becoming that. That's we're becoming those people. It's all. It only remains. Was it last week or two weeks ago? We were talking about the New Republic. There's no hope for us. Yeah, fuck it. We yeah. got to just. Yeah. All right. My, so yeah. <laughs> my subscription to commentary cannot start soon enough. This week in self-loathing. All right. Onward and upward, friends. Yeah. So apparently, the mooch called uh, Ryan Lizza last night, um, and we know of this because this morning Ryan Lizza was on CNN, and the mooch called into CNN uh, while Lizza was on. Um, and it was a fascinating conversation that if you haven't seen, you should you know check it out. But this article, which is all anyone on political Twitter is talking about right now, has such fantastic lines as um, what's a good one here? I mean, it's almost like you can't even uh, the mooch saying to Liza. Uh, so essentially he called Liza because uh, Liza had said that the mooch was having uh, uh, dinner with a few other people at at the White House. Uh, with the president. And uh, the mooch said, I asked these guys not to leak anything and they can't help themselves. He said, quote, you're an American citizen. This is a major catastrophe for the American country. Apparently the people know that the president's having dinner with a bunch of Fox News assholes. Uh, So I'm asking you as an American patriot to give me a sense of who leaked it. So, um, you know, as a communications professional and as someone who has represented hedge funds in the past, I am beyond offended that Anthony Scaramucci is now the communications director of the White House. Yeah, he's doing he is doing uh, just just really a first rate job. His big thing uh, for the and and for his big thing uh, for those who may not be familiar is uh, Scaramucci is he is pursuing a mo- one model of being communications director. The former communications director pursued a model of comms director. That was what you might call a little more conventional, as in we are going to develop a message, perhaps a series of messages. But why do that? We, Fuck it. That, well, we're we're coming to that. We're coming to that. Um, we're going to develop a a core message, and within that, there are going to be some smaller messages, and we are going to deliver those messages clearly and cl- as clearly and cleanly as our resources allow within a set period of time. Uh, that across a variety of, uh, variety of, of media of, of medium and, and places and locations delivered by people who were re- uh, respectful and, and uh, respected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that will get, and this will reach our core voters or our core, our core audiences, whatever, you know, whatever they may be. Uh, that did not go well at all. Uh, and, and I think that any, anyone who, who was watching would say that, uh, does anyone here remember infrastructure week? Great. Neither do I. Uh, it was, I think, was that the one that was overshadowed by James Comey's firing or his testimony? Who can say? But it was nonetheless a more conventional model of attempt to be a communications director. Uh, Scaramucci has taken a somewhat different approach to this, which is basically the one uh, Elliot just articulated. Fuck it. Uh, his, his sort of view of the essential message of the White House to just about anyone is, fuck me, fuck me, fuck you, fuckball. Yep. And he's writing that he's writing that line. And it's and frankly, it's a good one. It, it has simplicity on its side. Uh, there anyone can deliver it. It's easy to remember. Uh, and the core audience leaves knowing exactly where they stand. So in that sense, it is a piece of messaging genius. But the other thing that he is doing and the other method for being communications director for uh, and this is something he is right now doing extremely well. I, I am looking forward to seeing how long this lasts. But right now he is doing this profoundly well. And that is. Rather than rather than being half-hearted or uh, or you know in the least bit giving me the sense that he is either either has a sense of shame or is remotely connected to reality, he is out here parroting. He's out here uh, generating or parroting whatever lies in, about the president of the United States will make the president look best with just 
bald faced Gaul. And I, I can't get enough of it. This was the guy who in his opening presser talked about how Trump is a natural athlete, how he can sink 30 foot putts, uh, you know, throw a football uh, through, you know, a tire. I, I'm not sure where that, what, what the relevance of that is, um, you know, is capable of, you know, uh, you know, leaping giant buildings in the single bound and besting strong men and, you know, single combat and everything else, right? Like that's his entire model. But the other thing that he is doing along with, you know, taking the fuck me, fuck you, fuck ball, and Donald Trump is Superman view. Yep. Uh, messaging, messaging pair. It's not even a messaging triangle. It's just two lines. Uh, is, uh, is he is pursuing leakers with a vengeance that is absolutely wonderful uh, and, and will, I'm sure, lead to great things for everyone concerned. He is going to de-leak the White House come hell or high water. Uh, and he is first convinced that uh, Chief of Staff Ryan's Priebus is uh, who, as Charlie, as uh, Charlie Pierce uh, uh, has pointed, is an obvious anagram. anagram obvious anagram. Ryan's Priebus uh, is his sworn is Scaramucci's sworn enemy. Uh, Mooch is convinced that he is leaking, probably because he almost certainly is, and is going to try and get him fired. Uh, so, but this, so when he was talking to Liza about the leak and demanding that Liza name the leak and saying, "You're an American. This is an American catastrophe. You have to tell me who leaked." Uh, he demanded to know who, uh, who leaked, and then he threatened to fire uh, his entire communication staff. Okay, I'm going to, I, you know, I, okay, I'm going to fire every one of them. Direct quote. Okay, I'm going to fire every one of them, and then you haven't protected anybody, so the entire place will be fired over the next two weeks. Scaramucci's model for leaking is basically to be the bank robber who takes a bunch of hostages, and is like, all right, fine, I'm just going to start killing them all. It is a breathtaking performance. I feel very good about this because this happened just five minutes ago, Frank. Anthony Scaramucci on Twitter released a, quote, statement. And he said, I sometimes use colorful, and this is in response to the Lisa article. I sometimes use colorful language. I will refrain in this arena, but not give up on the passionate fight for at real Donald Trump's agenda. Hashtag MAGA. Sweet. Excellent. Good. That is a profoundly good mea culpa from a man who also said, and a, and a false mea culpa, and in fact, not a mea culpa at all. Uh, but a, but that's what you get from from uh, from this guy again playing his role perfectly. Uh, so you know, I'm not actually sorry, but I know the people are mad. So maybe I'll keep doing this. Maybe I won't. Yep. Um, the who also said who described his relationship with Ryan Priebus again, White House Chief of Staff Ryan Priebus, uh, as in the words, some brothers are like Cain and Abel. Uh, they are just, they're just destined to fight. Uh, some brothers can, can fight a little bit and then get along. It's up to the president to decide. So having immediately arrived, he immediately arrived, he set a scenario in which more than likely he and he is, he, the White House communications director and the chief of staff of president of the United States are going to have to fight to the death. Yeah. And it, it will hopefully be, you know, they'll just clear the, they'll, they'll clear some of the furniture out of the Oval Office. Uh, I mean, it is almost the, the octagon, um, mm. and, and just have at it. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we, 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 <laughs> the Oval Office will just become, this is the final act in which the Oval Office becomes the scene for a cage fight. And the American government will truly have turned into the worst combination of WWE, WWE and UFC. And I mean, I don't really feel it's As necessary to, I don't really want to remind people right now, but Linda McMahon is a member of the administration. Yeah, this is, this is excellent. I I would like to think that in that cage fight, uh, you know, I would like to think that Priebus might have uh, some some subtle moves, uh, maybe you know, maybe some maybe some dirty tricks. But on the other hand, this is a man whose uh, Twitter agreed uh, uh, and favorite cocktail, and indeed is named for him, is a large brandy glass filled with, filled with Cheerios and uh, Bailey's Irish cream. Yeah. So I don't know how I don't I don't feel like I could put money on a guy like that in a fight with Scaramucci, who obviously would just dive straight into him and, and bludgeon him to death uh, with a series of uh, really gaudy single color ties. Yeah, I mean, we, we won't mention his comments about uh, Steve Bannon and what Steve Bannon uh, does by himself. Uh, but I will just mention that uh, Louis C.K. gives a phenomenal visual of that when he talks about putting on his socks and that it's essentially like folding a bowling ball in half. There's it's 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 pretty it's pretty colorful stuff. Yeah, uh, but the one like we will mention this one thing just in terms of amp of hyping up the the Reince, uh Mooch fight in the same way that the McGregor uh, what's his name that he, who's he's fighting McGregor Mayweather. Yeah, that this has still been going on for like a month. Like you got to hype this thing up. We're gonna hype this up a little bit. So uh, I'll I'll read one more quote and then we will be and then then we'll then we'll move on. I think. Um, 
But uh, uh, the issue, he said, this being the mooch, was that he believed Priebus had been worried about the dinner because he hadn't been invited, he being Priebus. Uh, quote, Reince is a fucking paranoid schizophrenic or paranoiac. I don't know if he's supposed to, like, if he wants credit for inventing a word that doesn't make sense, but whatever. Scaramucci said. He channeled Priebus as he spoke, quote, oh, Bill Shine, who is a former president of Fox News who was fired because he was overseeing things while, you know, women were getting groped left and right. So obviously Donald Trump wanted to have dinner with him. Uh, Quote, oh, Bill Shine is coming in. Let me leak the fucking thing and see if I can cock block these people the way I cock block Scaramucci for six months. And in parentheses, Lisa writes, Priebus did not respond to a request for comment. Yeah, this is an awesome start. And basically what I, what, what I would like to leave everyone with on this segment is a reminder of what Matt Christman said on January 20th, 2017, which is this is the dumbest day in American history, you know, exceeded only by every, eclipsed only by every subsequent day. Yeah. Well, yeah. on the plus, Frank, a uh, little bit more breaking news. The U.S. Senate repassed the, re- the Russia sanction bill, and it's being sent to the president. Well, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's something we haven't talked about at all, so we, we definitely won't talk about that. <laughs> it's a super relevant thing as well, but yeah. it doesn't give us the chance to become quite as bilious. And, and, and that really is the point of this. Bilious. This is nice. That is our episode for the week. Uh, we will hopefully have an, uh, someone to interview next week. We're not sure who, but we want to make sure that it's somebody good. Uh, we figured that uh, the last couple episodes have been pretty action-packed, so kept it a little light this week. But in the meantime, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in patriotism. And obviously, please absolutely do take the time to leave us a review. We do read them. And with that, um, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, we are headed to Milan, city of fashion, or as most Taking Ship listeners will know it, the southern tip of the famous Blue Banana. Milan has taken a strong line recently against a large variety of other things. This is the local government of Milan. A strong line against a large variety of things, including uh, street food, food trucks, glass bottles on the street, and selfie sticks. Uh, And it's part of a broader effort to make the streets of Milan a little bit more livable uh, and to curb poor behavior by tourists, among other things. Uh, once, but once again, we gimlet-eyed go-getters here at Taking Ships see an opportunity based on a simple principle. There cannot be a crime without evidence. And so we propose to bring back two, at least, of the things that have been banned with a very simple solution. The salsiccia stick, a selfie stick made entirely out of dried Italian sausage. Take a selfie, and then, if those jackbooted carbonari come for you, devour the whole thing with alacrity and also a bag of red wine. You can't be arrested for heartburn, my grandfather used to say to me, and he was right. This scheme is absolutely foolproof, and it only remains for me to say that I don't know what could, I don't see what could possibly go wrong. Friends, we take ship now for Milan. Take care, everybody. <laughs>